decline of Christianity in American culture and the loss of influence of Jesus' church is the result of many issues, perhaps none as great as the evangelical church's conclusions about our future. Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins' Left Behind series have influenced the vast majority of Christians to anticipate the imminent rise of a dominant figure that will control the world's political, economic, and religious systems and will plunge this world into the Great Tribulation. Is that actually what the Bible teaches us? Have you, or those you know, seriously considered what the book of Revelation teaches? If you are like the majority of people today, you've accepted those ideas without a lot of serious consideration or study. In this series, Dr. Russ McKendry is teaching through the book of Revelation to reveal what it actually says about your future, the role of Jesus' church, and the practical implications those conclusions have on your worldview and everyday life. We hope that you'll join us for this entire series and increase in confidence about what you believe and why. Now, here's Russ with Overcoming Bystander Christianity. Revelation chapter 3, it's in verse 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, <clears throat> I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not, <clears throat> excuse me, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and shame... Uh, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as, all, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Throughout these messages to the seven churches that Jesus gave to John in chapters 2 and 3, we're coming to the end of chapter 3 this morning, um, all, all seven churches were, they were historical churches along a mail route that was just like an upside-down U. And John initially had to get the manuscript from the book of Revelation off the island of Patmos, which was a, pe a penal colony, a short distance onto the mainland, and then Ephesus was the first city. And so the, the mail route itself is addressed through uh, just each church is just in the progress of the mail route. Laodicea is the last one. Laodicea is <clears throat> only about 50 miles away from Ephesus. By the time it ends up, it's fairly close. Um, what I've tried to show you throughout this is kind of the essence of the whole series that we've named this Overcoming Bystander Christianity, I think for a good reason, that I think many Christians have been somewhat marginalized, um, marginalized corporately in the sense that uh, we, we join and become many different types of Christian organizations, and, and yet we, we're beginning to see that they don't have the influence that they once did. 
and it doesn't, it doesn't matter which organization you belong to, um, it just seems that Christianity is not as compelling as it once was, especially in our, in, in our society. Um, we, we believe that Christianity is actually st still very compelling. Um, but as it's being represented in the average Christian life, it's being distorted. And it's creating a conflict in the minds of people that look at it. I've told you many times that as my counseling with, with non-believers and even people who profess to be atheists is increasing, I oftentimes will just ask them, why don't you tell me what you, you believe Christianity to be? And I have not had a single occurrence where their representation of Christianity is something that I would believe either. In, in other words, once they're done explaining to me what they perceive it to be, it's so erroneous, it's so disjointed and separate from what the Bible really says it is that it leaves them without any compelling desire to investigate it further or to become a part of it. And I think that that's going to have to change. Now, I personally believe the only way it's going to change is for each of us to really understand how intelligent it is, what it is that God says about different parts of our life, because then we begin to understand that there's a truth about this that has eluded many of us. And the reason that we've been pushed to the sidelines in the minds of many people is simply because our understanding of our faith is not that intelligent. Now, th this morning we end with Laodicea, which it's actually the only church that Jesus d doesn't express anything positive about. Every other church, he had something good to say, and in Smyrna and Philadelphia, he didn't have anything bad to say, but this church, he doesn't have anything positive. Now, a lot of what's going on is due to the fact that the entire population of the United States, in a recent research study, um, both Christians and non-Christians, seven out of ten of you believe that religion and reality are in conflict with one another. So that tells you that whatever you believe about your faith and whatever you believe about reality, they're kind of sealed um, in a way that they don't make contact. And if we're ever going to get off the sidelines, we're going to have to overcome that. So hopefully today I want to be able to show you some of the things that Jesus said to a church that is the most marginalized of any of these seven. They have the biggest problems of any of the seven, and yet he didn't give up on them. He had some very direct instruction for them but he did not give up. Now the outline in this message, just like all the seven, is that the message begins with the, the character of Jesus that's pulled from that initial, just one aspect or two aspect, that's pulled from the initial vision that John has of Jesus in chapter one. He has another vision of him in chapter five, and then he has a, a third main vision in chapter 19. The closest parallels are chapter one and chapter 19. But what he's doing is just bringing the most pertinent points of his character to bear upon this message. And I think they're very interesting. So he starts with his character, and then he gives them a keep-doing list. He gives them a stop-doing list, and then he gives them uh, corrective instruction and then a warning and a promise. Now, for the most part, he's maintained that structure throughout all of that, and Every part of that structure is not in this, in this particular message. He deviates just a little bit, and I'll show you as we go. And so let's begin with this first part, the character of Jesus that he displays and kind of brings emphasis to, to, to Laodicea. <clears throat> in verse 14 it says, 
the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, this in reality is, a, is taken almost exactly from Isaiah chapter 66, which Isaiah chapter 65 and 66 was what they called a messianic prophecy. It was a prediction in the Old Testament. Isaiah was writing about 722 B.C., um, and, and so it's about 750 years earlier than John would write Revelation. And he's anticipating what it's going to be like for the Messiah and his kingdom. And what he says in verse 18, he says, I know your works and your thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And so there's something that John is thinking with when he is, is actually pulling this together, and it's kind of interesting. I want to give you some of the characteristics of Laodicea right now because they dovetail to this message as much or more than any of them so far. The first characteristic is that Laodicea had a tremendous reputation for fashion, primarily because they produced a material that was very, very rare. Um, they had a tremendous amount of wealth that they made from their commercial exchanges in regard to the production of a, a real fine quality of a, of a glossy black wool. This was the only place it was made, and Laodicea had made quite a bit of wealth just from this fabric. And so when it comes to them saying, we're well-dressed, they were well-dressed. The second thing is that the city was inordinately wealthy, perhaps the wealthiest of all of the other six churches that Jesus would write to. But the, the wealth came from a lot of the, the banking assets that were kept in the city were quite noteworthy. And Cicero had actually cashed some large bank drafts in Laodicea. They were, they were known for this, their commercial banking and the way that they sustained a lot in the region. In fact, in AD 17, when the earthquake destroyed pretty much the whole region, uh, the people ref refused the imperial help from Rome to reconstruct it. And they, they said, we can do this on our own. They wanted to demonstrate to the whole region, you might need help, but we don't need help. And so their wealth was a tremendous source of pride uh, for the city, and it was a very distinctive component to Laodicea. Uh, the, the third thing is that they had a, a very renowned, re reputable school of medicine. Laodicea had uh, the school that produced a very special eye and ear ointment. The, it was called the Friggin Power, uh, powder, rather, and it, it was famous to cure eye defects and ear ailments that came, you know, that were in the region. And so uh, they were known for their medicine, they were known for their money, and they were known for their, their clothing, their fashion. And uh, these became very distinctive. Uh, the last part... I think is really interesting because it ties, and I, I haven't seen this before. I've, been, I've studied through the book of Revelation several times now, but I, I never saw this connection until this time, that the city itself was very diverse spiritually, and its spiritual and religious culture was the best I could liken it to, was like, like Boulder. It was like a place that was just very eclectic, that if you didn't like what they had on one block, you just had to go to the next corner and there'd be something different. And they were particularly known for uh, several temples. They, they had imperial or emperor worship throughout the city. Um, but they also had uh, several temples to Greek gods. Zeus and this man Caro was an, uh, another god that was actually associated with healing, which kind of gave renown and reputation to the, the school of medicine. 
Now, before we move past this, I, I, I want to draw a contrast, and this is what I, I saw this week in a different light. I told you last week in Philadelphia that in the church in Philadelphia, it was perhaps more influential in the region than Laodicea. And it, it had every bit the religious diversity that Laodicea had, and yet in Philadelphia, the influence of the culture hadn't hadn't overtaken the church. The church had remained very faithful. I already told you that Jesus didn't have anything negative to, to say to Philadelphia. But essentially, just a few miles away in the city of Laodicea, they've got all these things going on about the same diversity spiritually and religiously, and this church has entirely succumbed to it. And it's amazing contrast between these churches because there's so many similarities between between the context in which Jesus is writing. And so one is very faithful and one is very unfaithful, very compromised. And so it's in the midst of that context that Jesus now brings forth and reinforces these characteristics of his character. And the first of it, he, he emphasizes his deity. He, he basically said throughout his public ministry that he was God. But here in this letter, he says it's the words of the Amen. And again, this was a quote that that Jesus took actually from Isaiah 65 where it says the God of truth which in the original Hebrew it's the God of Amen which meant to establish or to confirm and so when he says that it, that he's actually the words of the Amen he's actually making a claim to deity to anybody that knew the scripture very well in the Old Testament would have understood that um, the second characteristic that he reinforces is his knowledge and his insight. He said that he's a faithful and true witness. Now the question is, is he witnessing of you, of them, or is he witnessing of God? I tend to think that he's probably saying, listen, the image of God that's communicated to you is true. What you see of him through me is, is real. And so his knowledge and his insight, the communication of truth, is, is accurate. And then last, he emphasizes his power and authority, where he says he's the beginning of God's creation. And he's going to say later in the last chapter of Revelation, in chapter 22, in verse 13, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of the Greek alphabet, and the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So he's going to stress this several times, is that it's almost as if his character encompasses it past both ends of the spectrum. It, it was there before it began, and it's going to be there after it all ends. And so this is a pretty substantial revelation of his character to a group of people that began to give in, to compromise. The other influences were, were such that he told Philadelphia, you have very little power, but he promised them that they would gain the influence that they sought. This church knew they didn't have power, and they, they quit. And it's very interesting contrast, and he, he's asserting that he was indeed God, and their resistance and rejection of him was going to be the worst thing that they had ever done. And so he kind of pushes that out very quickly in this divulgence of his character. The keep doing list, there isn't any. There's no positive attributes that he explains or expresses here, and it's the only one of the seven churches in which he has, doesn't have anything positive to say. So when you move to the third part of the structure, the stop doing list is, is very interesting in verse 15 to 17. He says, I know your works, 
neither, you are neither cold nor hot. Uh, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor uh, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The long and the short of it is that Jesus is just basically saying, you make me want to puke. Now, if you've been a Christian for very long, you've probably run across Christians that are like this. They're, they're, there's something about the, the way that they can get into a conversation. You can be hanging out with a group of people, and they would be the ones that would speak up and tell everybody about their faith, but the things that they do and what they say simply don't line up at all. And Jesus says, you just simply you make me want to puke. Now, what a lot of people, the majority of commentators, if you were to just go out and purchase a, a commentator from a common, uh, a commentary from a Christian bookstore today, it's pretty likely, it's probable, that, that they're going to conclude that Jesus is basically saying that outright apostasy would be better than being in the middle. That's what the majority of the people conclude about what he just said. It'd be better if you just quit and went away. Now, sometimes I talk like that, and sometimes I, I tell people that you're pretending and you're playing a game, and it would be better for you to stop. It would be more profitable for you to admit it. But that's not what they're concluding here. They're, they're, it's, Jesus is saying, unless you're red hot, you might as well be stone cold. And I believe there's a much better way to understand this. I want to show you this. Um, Tim Keller pulled this out in recent, in recent years, where it seems as if the perception in our culture you have nominal Christians on one end where that's a person who's a Christian in name only. There's nothing about what she does or, or actually the way she lives that would be compelling at all. And because of that, you, you have people like Timothy McVeigh and uh, people that do these horrendous acts. And you, you have that uh, church in Kansas that pickets the, the, the funerals of, of service men and women. And they'll just carry around the placards that say, well, God hates fags, and, and, and it, it, it's crazy. People know that. You have, so that you have nominal people on one end that have a claim for a faith that everybody knows is unreal, and then on the other end, you have fanatics. You have people that, that their, their, their faith and life don't meet either. And so our culture has concluded that somehow you've got to land in the middle Somehow there's going to be some place in the middle that you have enough belief that you're not nominal, but you don't have so much belief that you're fanatical. But you see, this is a com complete illusion. That's not accurate at all. Because the nominal person is guilty of unbelief. But so is the fanatic. The fanatic that has only taken a portion of Scripture and putting all their weight on that without putting any weight in other areas is just as wrong. There's a confidence that we can have in a full faith that I think is very interesting. It's oftentimes elusive. So let me try to explain a better way to understand what he said here because I, I think it's somewhat helpful. Now, Laodicea was situated between two other cities, Colossae on one side and Hierapolis on the other side. Colossae was wedged into a narrow valley in the uh, there was towering mountains around it, and the water cascaded down in these icy streams. And so the, the water going to the Colossae was just ice cold. It was pure. It was 
potable and drinkable. But the, the water in Heropolis was, was very different because it was famous for having a hot mineral spring which flowed out of the city and it, it flowed across a high plateau and then it, it also came down the cliffs around Laodicea but by the time it got to Laodicea it, it stunk. It was lukewarm and it, it wasn't good for anything. And so Jesus isn't saying it'd be better for you to be hot like Heropolis and then instead of cold like Colossae. He's just saying you should be something. There should be some benefit that, that comes from you. But instead, you're in the middle. You're not, you're, you're not the hot water that's beneficial and you're not the cold water that's beneficial. And it's a very different message than I think the majority of people conclude from this. That he's actually saying that He's not saying at all that outright apostasy is better than indifference, but they should have impact of some sort. And I think that this is germane to all of our perception of missional Christianity, for whatever, whatever that means to you, that you have a place in this world. Christianity says that your, your conception in the womb of your mother was not an accident. Paul says in Acts 17 and verse 26, the boundary of your inhabitation and the point in time that you live in human history was appointed by God. There's nothing about you that is, is accidental. And so Christianity is a system of truth that's pushing you in to a sense that the better you understand it, the more you understand yourself. And the more you understand yourself, the more you understand the situations that your life engages all the time. That's real purpose. And he's saying you, you, there should be some purpose that comes out of you, but you're suspended between uh, having, having a purpose and a use and not having any use at all. And he said it, it shouldn't be like that. Now what's frightening, I think, is the fact that Jesus' estimation with, of Laodicea was completely opposite from theirs. Now, I, I'm not thinking of any of you particularly, but I tend to think that there's some of us in this room and many, many others that will listen online that have this problem that what you think is true about you is not at all what he's going to say about you. You see, what they were saying was true wasn't true at all. It was exactly the opposite of what was true. And I, I think that that's the main point that has to come out of this, that unless they were to change, they were, they were going to end up in a delusion that would perpetuate to the end of their lives. And I, I, I think that's a main point that has to come out of this. And so, very quickly, if, we, if you look at the stop doing list, it pertains to two real general categories. The first is he deals with their actions, that they needed to stop living the way you're living is what he's saying. In verse 15, he says, I know your works. He says, you're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold or hot. And so he, he's saying that there's something pathetic about this, this middle place that they've landed. This, this, their conduct in their life had to change. The second part of it in their stop doing is their attitudes. And he, he brings that to the fore in verse um, 17 where he's basically telling them you, you need to stop thinking the way you're thinking. He says, for, for you say, and, and this is this ongoing record the, the, this track that they just play inside their mind. He said, you keep saying to yourself that I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. How can that be? How can it be that God's assessment of a person would be you're, you're completely, entirely bankrupt? You're, there's a destitution in your life that's so prevailing, and you completely don't get it, and you think you're at the top of the pile. 
And so he says your actions and your attitudes are going to have to change from where they are right now. You need to stop it. Now he moves from that very quickly into this, the corrective prescription and he reverses it over and he, uh, he, it's, he deals with their, their attitude first that the corrective prescription in verse 18, he says, I counsel you. He said, basically, this is what I'm telling you. Buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may, you may be rich and white garments so that you may, be, uh, you may clothe yourself. In, in chapter 19, this, the wedding feast, we're going to get to it. Now, for those of you that are waiting for Revelation to get weird, you need to hang in just a couple more weeks because after chapter 6, it's going, it gets weird. But right here, he's just basically telling them that, that these white garments that the church will stand in. Now, in chapter 19 and verse 8, he said the fine linen of the, uh, that the bride is wearing in that wedding feast, he said it's the, it's, the, it's the righteous deeds of the saints. That's how they're living. And he says, you should be getting from me these white garments so that you may clothe yourself and, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes. They made the salve. He says, you don't need your salve, you need mine, so that you may see. And so their, their, atti their, their attitude is basically he's saying, you, you need to stop this delusion. You need to, to stop it, and completely, you're completely missing the entire reality of what you've become. Now, I, I fear that many Christians have come to a point, there's no need to change. There, there, there's no, their parents, their friends, the churches they go to, there's no one that just, that just challenges them to a point where they're willing to say, whatever they have, it doesn't seem like I have. They're, they're not at a point where they're able to, to, to look at the contrast. And, you know, I, I think a lot of us, we immediately begin to seek out, seek out accountability. And I think accountability is way overrated. I think accountability oftentimes is, is a symptom that comes out of a person where they're simply not at a point where they want to make a change. So what they do is ask somebody to, to hold them accountable, whatever that means. In Christian circles, it can mean a whole bunch of different things. What it looks like for me is when someone says, can you hold me accountable to read my Bible? And I always tell them, no, I won't do it. And they say, well, why not? And I said, if you can't bring yourself to the point that you want to read the Scripture and learn and grow in your faith on your own, why, what makes you think it's right if you do it because you're afraid to tell me you didn't do it? Is your embarrassment or respect for me going to be the thing that pushes you over the top? You see, I, there's a lot of this has become really pathetic. And we don't take responsibility for ourselves to say, I'm stuck because I don't want to change. There's a lot of you that are stuck because you haven't come to a point that you despise being stuck so bad that you want to change. But your lives are filled like it. With, they're filled with issues that when you, when, you, when you have an old computer and it dies and you go buy a new one and you can't make it work, you spend hours you know, getting it started. You, you, you figure out how the different software works and before very long you become proficient in it. But some of, some of us get stuck for years. And it's like we think it's okay to be stuck. And we think someone else is going to be able to hold us accountable to getting unstuck. But maybe it's something that needs to take place deep inside of us. And what he's saying here, you're going to have to stop your, the way you're thinking. You're going to have to change the way you're thinking. So if you're stuck, I think that this is an incredibly 
encouraging message because he's actually getting it. Now he moves from the attitude into the action next in verse 19. And he says, those whom I love I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Now the application of this, I, th I think number one, is that there's this amazing gracious patience that's being manifested here. God hasn't given up on, on, on... Now, God can give up. The same chapter that I'm going to quote here in just a minute in Hebrews 12, it says that Esau sought repentance with tears and he never found it. And so when, when you're at a point when you begin to know that something needs to change in your life and you don't begin to change, you're running the risk that God might just be done. But I can't tell you when that is. I praise God that he didn't give up on me for... For many times, I came to a point where I knew things had to change and I didn't change. I didn't have the courage to change. I didn't have the knowledge to change. And he persevered. He, he kept working with me and he brought me under the Puritans used to call it the hounds of heaven, which is a terrible thing. And it, it, that's where your conscience is, is, is continually working you over. But there, there is such a thing in Scripture as a time in which God lets you go. But he's not letting them go. He's not letting them go here. He's standing at a church that he has absolutely nothing good to say about. And he says, don't finish like this. It doesn't have to be like this. And it's this unbelievable gesture of grace. Listen, listen to the way the writer of Hebrews catch, captures this in Hebrews 12 and verse 7 and 8. It says, it is for discipline that you, you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have been, we've all part uh, participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Basically, he's saying, God's going to take you to the woodshed from time to time. And if he doesn't, you're not his. And so those of you that have gotten to a point that you, you just hate it, that, that's not such a bad thing. I don't like it either. But it, it's inevitable. He says, if you don't partake of this discipline of which we've, made all, we've all been made partakers, then you don't belong to him at all. And this is, this is a gracious thing because he's not letting them go. And for those of you that, that are coming under conviction and you're beginning to see that your life isn't at all what you thought it was going to be, the relationships that you thought you were entering into, the business investments and all of it, it doesn't, it's not even close to what you imagined. You don't have to die that way. It doesn't have to remain that way any longer than today. Now, the second part of this is that I want to bring some emphasis to what I think is a big problem in our culture. I think there's a reason that many of you can't hear what he's saying. And I think over the last couple of decades, the, the self-esteem movement that has led to this pathetic political correctness is a problem. Because some of you run in circles in which in which if you went into a party with your pants and zip, none of your friends have the courage to tell you that. That's just wrong. And you've gotten so accustomed to people being nice to you that when someone has the courage to tell you something you really need to hear, you completely wilt. You completely give up and you fall down and you, you abandon that friendship out of, out of just getting all hurt and getting your, your emotions all wrapped up into it and to where you can't really hear the truth. And the scripture says, but faithful are the wounds of a friend and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And it seems as if our society, society has this really uber soft underbelly. 
And everybody wants it to be so nice. It, it, we, we, we think things that are true are always going to be nice. But what it says in Proverbs is that there's times when people kiss you that it's an enemy. It's not your friend. And there, there's a toughness that Christianity requires of us. There's something that, 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 that makes us yearn and long for people to be able to level with us and to be able to say things that are true, even things that are difficult and true. Now, when I was growing up, my, my, my mother's family was, was actually very kind. And my father's family, my, my grandmother immigrated, my great-grandfather immigrated from Tyrol, Austria. They had seven children and two of them by, died on the way over here. And that family was hard. They were very hard. And it was very common to walk into my grandmother's house and the first words out of her mouth is, you look like you've gained some weight. And it was stuff like that all the time. And I, I didn't like that initially. And growing up, it, as, a, as a child, I, I just naturally, like a pinball, I just kind of avoided those bumpers. But I, I began to see in time that their love for me was, it, it had no filter. And there was something about it that, that made you expect them to be very honest. And so when I began to work for my grandfather, he was hard. He, the day that I began, to, my grandfather was an electrical co contractor, and he said, I'm going to pick you up tomorrow at 5.30 in the morning. And he said, I want you to bring a straight screwdriver, a Phillips screwdriver, a pair of side cutters, and, and there was some, uh, something else. And so I, I went and pillaged my dad's toolbox. And we went to work, and we got out of the truck, and, and he said, show me your, show me your tools. And I, I, I proudly took out my dad's tools from my lunchbox. And he said, these are crap. And I remember standing there right in front of his truck, and he just flung them into this field. And they all just, I'm thinking, those are my dad's tools. <laughs> and he said, get into the truck. And I said, why did he say get into the truck? And we drove to this place called El, El Rey Electric. <clears throat> and I thought, this is really cool. He went down the shelf, and he, had this, he put all these tools into the thing, and I didn't get a paycheck for three weeks. He said, I'm not going to buy your tools. He said, you buy your own tools. If you're going to work for me, you're going to have good tools because I'm not going to let you work with that crap. I thought that was the harshest thing that had ever happened to me because not only did I have to buy my own tools, I had to buy my dad new tools. <laughs> <clears throat> but there's something that's happened to us that I fear for our country if, 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 if we were to face the difficulties of the depression in the 30s. Would you live or die? If our country was to be attacked, would you just faint? See, I wonder if we have the, the same constitution that we once had as a country. And I'm, I'm afraid we don't. I'm afraid that our work ethic has slipped. I'm afraid that our, our dignity and our integrity, our yes isn't yes and our no isn't no. And it's time that we can fix it. And he's speaking to a church that he has nothing good to say and he doesn't quit on them. But there's something about you hearing truth that has to change. Because if you don't, it's just like firing a, a, a bullet against a rock. And all it's going to do is leave a little white mark and end up someplace else. And there's something about this that I just plead with you that you would have a heart to hear because he's not done with you. 
the majority in this room, there, there, might, there might be some of you in this room that he's done with, but I, I, I don't believe it. And I don't think you should. And I think you need to hear. In Proverbs, Solomon says something that's almost haunting to me because he says it in Proverbs 17 and verse 10. He says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred lashes, a hundred blows into the back of a fool. What is he saying? He is saying, a man or a woman of understanding, when they sit and have a cup of coffee and someone brings the truth to them, it goes deeper into her heart. It goes deeper into her psyche, into her, her being than strapping a man to a pole and lashing him a hundred times. It's a fool. Which one are you? How teachable are you? Now he moves next to the warning, and there's really no warning. And it's really interesting because the warning, there's nothing explicit about it because I, th I think it's covered in the whole general description. As he describes the church, he's getting at what the warning is. <laughs> the, you're deluded. You might as well be smoking crack. What you think and what you are, they don't even line up. And so when he gets to the promise, it's, it's really interesting. And again, I want to bring to the forefront of your thinking this contrast to Philadelphia. Here's a group of faithful people in an unbelievably influential city. It'd be like living in Hollywood that's, that's changing people, people's thinking around the world. And he says, you know, I know you have little power. They got it. They knew that, okay, you can go ahead and sit around and talk about changing the nation. You can sit around and talk about doing this and doing that, but you really don't have any power at all. But he said, you need to stick with it. This city thought they had power. This city thought that they had influence. This church in Laodicea did, and yet they didn't have any. Now, I, I guess I would prefer to be in Philadelphia. And if you have little power and you know you have little power, at least you can improve upon that. But if you have no power and you think you have a lot of power, you're in trouble. And so there's where the, the promise, I think, is, is really interesting because in verse 20 to 21, he really extends to them this opportunity for change. He says, behold, which is this call to attention. He says, you need to really listen closely. This is like a yellow highlighter. He says, I, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and, and he with me. We've taken that. Now, there's Methodist churches all over the United States that have this, this picture painted in their foyer. They, they mass-produced them and they put them in. And it, it's, it's actually quite a pathetic picture, actually. It's, it's a picture of Jesus standing, and it's, it's, it's the white American Jesus, too. And you're looking at his long, dark hair and a robe, and he's standing there knocking on a door, and there's no doorknob. And it's emphasizing your decision to let him in. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, can't you hear it? I'm right here. Can't you hear that? And he's stressing something. He's saying, I'm still here. But you're going to have to get off the fence. And there's something about this that, that creates, I think, a very interesting thing. He, he finishes in verse 21 by saying, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. 
as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This, this, this promise might be the most significant of any of the churches. He says, you can hear it, and I'm right here. And it's almost like when he stood over Jerusalem with his, his arms out. He says, how often I would have gathered you as a hen does her chicks, but you would not. He's telling the city, I'm right here. You don't have to finish like this. You started like this, but you don't have to finish like this. Now, for some of us, I kind of hit upon this last week just a, just a bit. When most of us get converted, we're converted from something that seems really kind of neutral in comparison to the rest of our society. But after you're converted, you begin to look at it and you begin, it's kind of rank, actually. You, you're, you're able to say, I, I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I was thinking that. And it can be something like a person that's obsessed with marriage and they're, they're running from single hell. It can be a couple that's obsessed with having a child and they're running from childless hell. It can be, you know, a person that's idolizing a, a, an automobile and you're getting out of beater hell. And, you know, it, it, for others it might be a job, and so you're getting out of job hell. And you've made something so great that it isn't until you've trashed five marriages that you began to think your problem really isn't that your view of marriage is too low. The problem is that your view of marriage is way too high, and nobody can fill it. No, no, nobody can fill that and meet that mark, and so you're justified. Who could blame you for wanting to be married so bad to the right person that when you find the wrong person, it's just like socks. You have to take them off and put on a new pair. And it's, it, everybody looks at it and Everybody looks at it and says, well, you, you just don't have a proper view of marriage. And it's not. It, it is. It's an improper view of marriage, but it's, it's because it's so high. You refuse to put it in the place that God puts it. And so, in the end, there's a, an adjustment that has to take place. And that adjustment in, 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 uh, in real-life time is very difficult because it, it produces a whole bunch of insecurity. Because you're asking yourself, did I do the right thing? And after you get converted, it's not like you wake up and there's angels floating above your bed in the morning. You, you have bad breath, just like you did the day before. And it, 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 but there, there's a, something at work in you now that's changing, but that insecurity doesn't go away very quickly. And you broke with an idol, whatever it is, to believe the gospel. And in doing that, it meets our lives and our heart with difficulty, not with ease. And I think there's a lot of people that quit at the first turn because they don't anticipate that this is really going to be it. And so I, I would encourage you to consider this. If you're going to have the courage, the wisdom and the courage and the strength to change, don't set, your up, set yourself up for a fall. Don't begin to think that if, if you were to sit there now before you take communion and to say, Jesus, I confess it. I have been exactly like that. I'm saying one thing and doing something else. The influence of the city has completely overtaken me. I haven't been serious about my faith for a long time. Good for you. Wait till he shows up. But don't measure the whole thing tomorrow morning because you're going to be filled with insecurity wondering if breaking with your idol was a good thing or a bad thing. That's how it works.
That's how real it is. Now, Jesus just said it this way in Luke 14. He said, don't start building the tower until you really count the cost. Because if you do, you'll quit. And when you quit, they're going to make fun of all of us. And so count the cost. All right, let's go ahead and pray. And, uh, and we'll get the, uh, the band up here to finish in our communion. Father, I would ask that, uh, that maybe these words wouldn't be lost on us. We, we don't know exactly how Laodicea responded to this. I, I don't know if they just got upset and, and got all hurt and got mad at Jesus because he wasn't nice. I see that all the time. We have been coaxed into believing that we're something other than we are. And when something breaks, it oftentimes is a startling reality. It's a wake-up call. And yet many people just want to go back to sleep. It reminds me a lot of the movie The Matrix, where we can just be completely in an illusion. And the way we live our lives isn't real at all. And so we go through heartache after heartache. We go through shipwreck after shipwreck. And we just kind of like keep rebooting the system, thinking, oh, I'll do better next time, without any sincere, intelligent change. I don't know if they were like that or if they were really broken-hearted. And when he said, be zealous and repent, I don't know if they did that or not. But, but that was many years ago. And it, right now, that transaction is going on in this very room. I think that there are areas in my life, as there are in every one of our lives, in which we're going to have to make a decision as to whether we want to change, whether we're going to actually listen to a gracious overture that's reaching to us yet one more time. I pray that you would help us to have the courage and the wisdom and the strength to hear you today. I thank you for these things now, for we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the L2 Sermon Series, Overcoming Bystander Christianity, taught by Dr. Russ McHenry. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, email feedback at l2today.com. And thanks for listening.